0: This is Chapter 15 of A Tramp Abroad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Tramp Abroad by Mark Twain, Chapter 15, Down the River. Charming Waterside Pictures. Men and women and cattle were at work in the dewy fields by this time. The people often stepped aboard the raft, as we glided along the grassy shores, and gossiped with us, and with the crew for a hundred yards or so, then stepped ashore again, refreshed by the ride. Only the men did this, the women were too busy. The women do all kinds of work on the continent. They dig, they hoe, they reap, they sow, they bear monstrous burdens on their backs, they shove similar ones long distances on wheelbarrows, they drag the cart when there is no dog or lean cow to drag it, and when there is they assist the dog or cow. Age is no matter, the older the woman the stronger she is, apparently. On the farm a woman's duties are not defined, she does a little of everything. But in the towns it is different, there she only does certain things, the men do the rest. For instance, a hotel chambermaid has nothing to do but make beds and fires in fifty or sixty rooms, bring towels and candles, and fetch several tons of water up several flights of stairs, a hundred pounds at a time, in prodigious metal pitchers she does not have to work more than eighteen or twenty hours a day and she can always get down on her knees and scrub the floors of halls and closets when she is tired and needs a rest as the morning advanced and the weather grew hot we took off our outside clothing and sat in a row along the edge of the raft and enjoyed the scenery with our sun umbrellas over our heads and our legs dangling in the water every now and then we plunged in and had a swim every projecting grassy cape had its joyous group of naked children the boys to themselves and the girls to themselves the latter usually in care of some motherly dame who sat in the shade of a tree with her knitting the little boys swam out to us sometimes but the little maids stood knee-deep in the water and stopped their splashing and frolicking to inspect the raft with their innocent eyes as it drifted by Once we turned a corner suddenly, and surprised a slender girl of twelve years or upward just stepping into the water. She had not time to run, but she did what answered just as well. She promptly drew a little young willow-bough, athwart her white body with one hand, and then contemplated us with a simple and untroubled interest. Thus she stood while we glided by. She was a pretty creature, and she and her willow-bough made a very pretty picture and one which could not offend the modesty of the most fastidious spectator. Her white skin had a low bank of fresh green willows for background, and effective contrast, for she stood against them, and above and out of them projected the eager faces and white shoulders of two smaller girls. Toward noon we heard the inspiring cry, "'Sail ho!' "'Wear away!' shouted the captain. Three points off the weather bow!' We ran forward to see the vessel. It proved to be a steamboat, for they had begun to run a steamer up the Neckar for the first time in May. She was a tug, and one of a very peculiar build and aspect. I had often watched her from the hotel, and wondered how she propelled herself, for apparently she had no propeller or paddles. She came churning along now, making a deal of noise of one kind or another, and aggravating it every now and then by blowing a hoarse whistle. She had nine keelboats hitched on behind and following after her in a long, slender rank. We met her in a narrow place between dikes, and there was hardly room for us both in the cramped passage. As she went grinding and groaning by, we perceived the secret of her moving impulse. She did not drive herself up the river with paddles or propellers. She pulled herself by hauling on a great chain. This chain is laid in the bank of the river and is only fastened at the two ends. It is seventy miles long. It comes in over the boat's bow, passes around a drum, and is paid out astern. She pulls on that chain, and so drags herself up the river or down it. She has neither bow nor stern, strictly speaking, for she has a long-bladed rudder on each end, and she never turns around. She uses both rudders all the time, and they are powerful enough to enable her to turn to the right or the left and steer around curves, in spite of the strong resistance of the chain. I would not have believed that that impossible thing could be done, but I saw it done, and therefore I know that there is one impossible thing which can be done. What miracle will man attempt next? we met many big keel boats on their way up using sails mule power and profanity a tedious and laborious business a wire rope led from the foretopmast to the file of mules on the towpath a hundred yards ahead and by dint of much banging and swearing and urging the detachment of drivers managed to get a speed of two or three miles an hour out of the mules against the stiff current the neckar has always been used as a canal and thus has given employment to a great many men and animals. But now that this steamboat is able, with a small crew and a bushel or so of coal, to take nine keel boats farther up the river in one hour than thirty men and thirty mules can do it in two, it is believed that the old-fashioned towing industry is on its deathbed. A second steamboat began work in the Neckar three months after the first one was put in service. Figure 4 at noon we stepped ashore and bought some bottled beer and got some chickens cooked while the raft waited then we immediately put to sea again and had our dinner while the beer was cold and the chickens hot there is no pleasanter place for such a meal than a raft that is gliding down the winding neckar past green meadows and wooded hills and slumbering villages and craggy heights graced with crumbling towers and battlements in one place we saw a nicely-dressed German gentleman without any spectacles. Before I could come to anchor, he had got under way. It was a great pity. I so wanted to make a sketch of him. The captain comforted me for my loss, however, by saying that the man was without a doubt a fraud who had spectacles, but kept them in his pocket in order to make himself conspicuous. Below Hasmersheim we passed Hornberg, Goetz von Berlickingen's old castle— it stands on a bold elevation two hundred feet above the surface of the river it has high vine-clad walls enclosing trees and a peaked tower about seventy-five feet high the steep hillside from the castle clear down to the water's edge is terraced and clothed thick with grapevines this is like farming a mansard roof all the steeps along that part of the river which furnish the proper exposure are given up to the grape that region is a great producer of rhine wines the germans are exceedingly fond of rhine wines they are put up in tall slender bottles and are considered a pleasant beverage one tells them from vinegar by the label the Hornburg hill is to be tunneled and the new railway will pass under the castle the cave of the spectre two miles below hornberg castle is a cave in a low cliff which the captain of the raft said had once been occupied by a beautiful heiress of Hornberg, the lady gertrude in the old times it was seven hundred years ago she had a number of rich and noble lovers and one poor and obscure one sir wendell lobenfeld with the native chuckle-headedness of the heroine of romance she preferred the poor and obscure lover with the native sound judgment of the father of a heroine of romance the von Berlichingen of that day shut his daughter up in his dungeon keep or his oubliette or his culverin or some such place and resolved that she should stay there until she selected a husband from among her rich and noble lovers the latter visited her and persecuted her with their supplications but without effect for her heart was true to her poor despised crusader who was fighting in the holy land Finally she resolved that she would endure the attentions of the rich lovers no longer, so one stormy night she escaped and went down the river and hid herself in the cave on the other side. Her father ransacked the country for her, but found not a trace of her. As the days went by and still no tidings of her came, his conscience began to torture him, and he caused proclamation to be made that if she were yet living and would return, he would oppose her no longer, she might marry whom she would. The months dragged on, all hope forsook the old man. He ceased from his customary pursuits and pleasures, he devoted himself to pious works, and longed for the deliverance of death. Now, just at midnight, every night, the lost Harris stood in the mouth of her cave, arrayed in white robes, and sang a little love ballad, which her crusader had made for her. She judged that if he came home alive, superstitious peasants would tell him about the ghost that sang in the cave, and that as soon as they described the ballad he would know that none but he and she knew that song, therefore he would suspect that she was alive, and would come and find her. As time went on the people of the region became sorely distressed about the specter of the haunted cave. It was said that ill-luck of one kind or another always overtook anyone who had the misfortune to hear that song eventually every calamity that happened thereabouts was laid at the door of that music consequently no boatmen would consent to pass the cave at night the peasants shunned the place even in the daytime but the faithful girl sang on night after night month after month and patiently waited her reward must come at last five years dragged by and still every night at midnight the plaintive tones floated out over the silent land while the distant boatmen and peasants thrust their fingers into their ears and shuddered out a prayer. And now came the crusader home, bronzed and battle-scarred, but bringing a great and splendid fame to lay at the feet of his bride. The old lord of Hornburg received him as his son, and wanted him to stay by him and be the comfort and blessing of his age. But the tale of that young girl's devotion to him and its pathetic consequences made a changed man of the night. He could not enjoy his well-earned rest. He said his heart was broken, he would give the remnant of his life to high deeds in the cause of humanity, and so find a worthy death and a blessed reunion with a brave true heart whose love had more honored him than all his victories in war. When the people heard this resolve of his, they came and told him there was a pitiless dragon in human disguise in the haunted cave, a dread creature which no knight had yet been bold enough to face and begged him to rid the land of its desolating presence he said he would do it they told him about the song and when he asked what song it was they said the memory of it was gone for nobody had been hardy enough to listen to it for the past four years and more toward midnight the crusader came floating down the river in a boat with his trusty crossbow in his hands He drifted silently through the dim reflections of the crags and trees, with his intent eyes fixed upon the low cliff which he was approaching. As he drew nearer, he discerned the black mouth of the cave. Now, is that a white figure? Yes. The plaintive song begins to well forth and float away over meadow and river. The crossbow is slowly raised to position, a steady aim is taken. The bolt flies straight to the mark. The figure sinks down, still singing. The knight takes the wool out of his ears, and recognizes the old ballad, too late. Ah, if he had only not put the wool in his ears! The crusader went away to the wars again, and presently fell in battle, fighting for the cross. Tradition says that during several centuries the spirit of the unfortunate girl sang nightly from the cave at midnight, but the music carried no curse with it, and although many listened for the mysterious sounds, few were favored, since only those could hear them who had never failed in a trust. It is believed that the singing still continues, but it is known that nobody has heard it during the present century. End of chapter 15.